There's a collection of stories called Aesop's Fables. These fables are similar to what we call parables in the Bible. Aesop's Fables taught principles of truth and usually had one main point. In one such fable, there was a, an envious and a covetous man. The god Zeus came to this man one day, as the story goes, and told him that he would grant him any wish that he desired. But there was one condition. Whatever he asked for, his neighbor would receive the same gift, but twice as much. After thinking long and hard about all the things he wanted, yet unable to bear the thought of his neighbor having twice as much, the man replied to Zeus, my wish is to lose one eye. This is an extreme example of something we all wrestle with. It's something called coveting, envying what someone else has to the point of desiring it for ourselves. This is the last sermon in the series about God's top 10. It's about relationship. By the way, if, you're, if you got, came in the middle of that, and many of you did, they're all online on our website, and you can listen to them. They're actually downloadable outlines and questions and all kinds of things, but that's on our website. This is the last one. The 10 commandments have given us guidelines on, on how to relate to God and how to relate to fellow human beings. Again, God is not this big bad guy up there who says, find out what they're doing for, for fun and, and make them stop. Our misperception is that fear is the rule. Fear of God, fear of the consequences of our actions, and fear that we're going to have to somehow stop having fun. People then fear to make contact with God. The atheist who does not believe in God or the agnostic who believes God is irrelevant live in fear that whatever happens in life, they're basically on their own. The Christian lives in fear of God or making him angry by breaking the rules. But Christianity is not about fear. It's about hope. It's about hope. Why? Because God first initiated contact with us not to punish us, but to love us to love us. He made personal contact with us by coming as a person, a baby born in, in a feeding trough. The story of Christmas is all about God making contact with people, and we just celebrated that last three weeks. Upon initiating the relationship, then God gave us guidelines or parameters that when followed make for a great relationship, first with God and then with other people. This is message about the 10th ten, the commandment. Covetous or content? Covetous or content? And I want us to look at that. It's in Exodus 20, verse 17. It'll also be on the, on the slide in front of you. And it reads this, the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's start just by breaking down the very simple prohibition. The prohibition, Roman numeral one, is do not covet. Do not covet, what does that mean? This, the 10th commandment, is all about something called desire. Desire, the Hebrew word for desire is hamad. And desire itself is a neutral word, it's neither good nor bad. Only when desire becomes misdirected or misused, desiring what belongs to someone else, does it actually become a wrong desire. 
Maxie Dunham writes, the Hebrew word for covet, hamad, is a neutral word that means desire or take pleasure in. Desire directed in the wrong channel or desire that causes us to want something that belongs to someone else or go after something to which we have no right. That's covetousness. And when we have that attached to desire, then it becomes sin or becomes wrong. Let me illustrate, okay? Let me illustrate, okay? Um, let's say I don't own a house, and I really want a house, but I don't want just any house. I want Vernon Nancy's house, okay? And I desire their house so much that I will pursue getting their house away from them so I can have it, okay? That's coveting. That's when desire, just desiring to have a house is is fine, but if you desire something so much that you'll do whatever it takes to get it away from someone else, that's desiring someone else. That, then it's sin. It's wrong. Covet or covet means uh, covet or hamad means to desire earnestly or to long after. And Walter Kaiser puts it this way: He says this commandment deals with man's inner heart and shows that none of the previous nine commandments, all of that we've studied, could be observed merely from an external act. In other words, it's something that happens on the inside. This commandment is directed against desiring as the root from which every sin against a neighbor springs. Powerful words. Now, what does that mean? It means that coveting happens on the inside. It happens on the inside. We can hide it. Nobody can see it. Except God, of course. We're commanded not to covet our neighbor's house or household, all that belongs to our neighbor, neighbor's wife or spouse, a neighbor's possessions. And in the original writing of this particular commandment, it lists servants and livestock because that was the currency of the day. So it had to do with another's possessions. And of course, we understand today that the word neighbor means any fellow human being, not just those who are living next door. Okay? Most of us, if we are truly honest, would rather have a person's house and positions that live in a better neighborhood than we do, but that's, that's a whole other story. Every other sin against people springs from coveting, whether it's murder, adultery, stealing, or even bearing false witness. And coveting is just so insidious and sneaky since it's hidden in our heart. No one can see it, and I can actually covet and still really look good. See, sin starts in the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. That's why the answer to the, all, the, all the problems that we see in our culture is not more laws or stricter enforcement of laws, not harsher penalties, definitely not education or educating the mind. We all need heart change. We need a transformation of the heart. And in Romans 7, 7 to 8, it says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not know what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. See, it's the heart. It's the heart. Covening starts in the heart and bring forth, brings forth all kinds of, of evil actions, thoughts, words, and deeds. So the location of the problem is in the heart, and it's in every one of us. It's every one of us. But how does the problem of coveting start? How does it start? Look at, let's look at the, the problem, Roman numeral two. The problem is something called dissatisfaction. 
Dissatisfaction. Alan Cole writes, ultimately to desire and try to obtain the property of another is to be dissatisfied with what God has given and thus to show a lack of faith in his love for me. The root problem is dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction of what we have in light of what other people have. Now, I don't know if you saw this television commercial. It was, a, it was an ingenious television commercial that showed a typical suburban American neighborhood with tree-lined streets and attractive homes up and down each street. And all the cars that were parked in driveways and all the cars driving through this neighborhood looked identical. They looked like brown cardboard boxes. Everyone in the neighborhood was seemingly happy and contented, smiling and satisfied, until into this neighborhood comes a sleek, modern, bright, red Hyundai. Everyone turns and stares, and the contrast is so obvious that the commercial says everybody will be dissatisfied with the ordinary square brown cardboard cars until they've been satisfied with this car, which everyone now wants. It was a contrast. It was like everything is fine until then they looked at, what is that? Like the man in Aesop's fable, we cannot bear the thought of someone else having something more or better than us. So we desire equal or better, whatever that is. So the sequence begins. The sequence is letter A, it's I compare. I compare. Comparison, we first see comparison in our children when they compare the size of their cookie with their brother and sister, okay? We can probably remember comparing those kinds of things when we were growing up. Maybe it's a bigger piece of pie or candy. I compare. Coveting begins with I compare. So I compare and then I compete. Letter B, I compete. I compare and then I compete. As adults, we become much more sophisticated and learn how to disguise our coveting by labeling it competition or free enterprise. Some would call it capitalism. Now, there's nothing wrong with good stiff competition. Most of you probably competed in some, some category of sports or music or some kind of thing when you were growing up. Competition is fine. Nothing wrong with good stiff competition or free enterprise or even capitalism as long as it's not birthed out of a coveting heart. When we look back on the history of our country, the United States of America, we find people that came here with dreams and ideals. Our nation's founders envisioned a country of plenty with wealth and prosperity where no one would be poor or hungry. Therefore, no one would covet, right? Hmm. Then we studied socialism and communism, which envisioned a utopia where all were equal, sharing all things alike, where no one had anyone more than anyone else, and so everybody's equal. All had plenty, so there's no poverty, there's no rich, there's no competition. It means no dissatisfaction and no coveting, right? No, not so much. It doesn't work that way. There, it was very interesting, a couple of years ago, our daughter had an opportunity to spend two and a half months in Norway, and, which is a, basically a socialist country. And there's this cultural construct in Norway that says everybody has to be equal. 
It's called Jante Loven. Everyone's equal. No one is any better than anyone else. And it permeates the culture so much that if someone tries to get an advantage or do something extraordinary, people try to pull them down because we're supposed to stay at the same equality and level. That's, that's socialism. It really is. And, and it permeates the culture in Norway. That's why all the entrepreneurs from Norway, they come to America. Because here you can excel. That's not justifying coveting, but it's, it's showing the, the weakness of socialism. See, it looks great on paper. The problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Somehow, because of selfishness and corruption of the human heart, those with the power to bring equality for everybody seem to always want more for themselves. No. Really? Somehow. Somehow it works. Look around the world. Communist Russia, China, Eastern Europe, North Korea all have a small, privileged, powerful, rich elite. What happened to nations like Iraq under Saddam Hussein, who had a personal fortune in the billions, and we never did find out how many palaces he owned. And when, just before the Iraq war broke out, this la the last one, he made a personal withdrawal from the Bank of Iraq in the amount of $1 billion. This is what happens when you have somebody trying to make everybody equal. How about the utopia called a republic or democracy where free enterprise reigns and all have equal opportunity? It's worked for most, or so it seemed. And this has produced the most prosperous and powerful nation in the history of mankind, this country. But has it eliminated covetousness? Has it brought happiness? Joy Davidman writes, we in America have realized this dream. We are richer than any previous nation, well-fed and well-clothed to the point of wastefulness. Where a medieval woman kept a dress for a lifetime, our girls throw it away in a year because it's out of style. And where, where bygone French women devised a nourishing soup from an end of cheese, crust of bread, half an onion, and some leftover meat broth, all of us can think of is a, about a quick trip to the garbage can. And we are safer than any previous nation, safe to the point of softness. We fret about muggers on city streets, juvenile delinquents, corrupt politicians, but to our ancestors, dangerous streets and violent youth and wicked rulers were merely the hazards of life. And we live longer, healthier, better insured lives than the men and women of previous nations. As far as material goods go, our earthly paradise has given us far more than the first pro progress worshipers ever dreamed possible. Yet there is one indispensable condition of paradise lacking. We are not happy. We are not happy in the place, nor for that matter can we honestly maintain that we are completely just and peaceful and loving in it. See, there's only one problem. We never have enough. Just never have enough. We've learned to identify happiness with wealth, but no one who identifies happiness with wealth ever has enough wealth. And somebody always has more than me. <laughs> so I covet, let us see, I covet. I compare, I compete, and then let us see, I covet. How can we expect happiness from an insatiable appetite while no matter how much we have, we still want more? Who is more covetous, the man with a million dollars or the man with 10 children? The answer, of course, is the man with a million dollars because the man with 10 children does not want any more. 
All we ever seem to want in life is, is more, more. We think that in America, when every person has whatever they need, no one else will be driven to covetousness. We say, now wait a minute, I've never coveted my neighbor's house, it's a wreck. My wife is far more attractive and no one has servants and I wouldn't know what to do with a donkey or cow, even if my neighbor had any. Okay, that's true. Well, the 10th commandment says anything that belongs to your neighbor or another person. Have you ever noticed how it is that everyone always seems to have more of something than you? And you say, I don't want his house, I want his pool. I don't want his pool, I want his Porsche. I don't want his Porsche, I want his job. I don't want his job, I want his income. I don't want his income, I just want his position. I don't want his position, I just want his early retirement. I don't want her husband's early retirement, I just want her wardrobe. I don't want her wardrobe, I want her education. I just want her circumstances, vacation trips or cruises. I just want her GPA or his SAT score. I want his friends or her popularity. I want his speed or her athleticism. I want her scholarship, I want his car. I want his talent, I want her looks. I want, I want, I want. Face it, sometimes we just want to live the other person's life. The movie star, the professional athlete, the successful businessman, acquaintance, a relative, sister, brother, or neighbor. Coveting can include a house, spouse, money, possessions, position, country club membership, opportunity, personality, temperament, spiritual gifts, body. You can go on and on and on. We can covet just about anything. If I only had his looks, if I only had her slender shape. Some people can eat anything they want and not gain a pound. Others walk into a bakery, take a deep breath, and gain five pounds. It's just not fair. It's not fair. So what is at the root of all this coveting, this desiring what others have for ourselves? It's dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with what I have, what I am, where I am, what I'm doing. Discontentment and dissatisfaction produces envy, greed, and coveting. I compare, I compete, I covet. How many of you have been back to a high school, college, or some kind of reunion? Anybody? How many of you have been back there? Yeah, it's kind of a trippy thing. <laughs> <laughs> you go back and you see all these old people. It's like, what, what happened to all these people? <laughs> By the time the people reach their mid to late 40s, they've usually gone back to one of their reunions, high school or college or something. And as, as we do that, we tend to compare where other people are at. And we think maybe we came up on the short end of it. Some, some people have made it in business or some friends of mine were presidents or vice presidents of major companies and, and were, were driven to self-pity, second-guessing, thinking we deserve more, easier, or more fulfilling because we compare and we're dissatisfied. Is there a solution to all this? Is there a solution? What is the counterbalance? What is the counterbalance to coveting? The solution, number three, is contentment. Contentment. Sounds easy enough. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 
What's the answer? Letter A, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Some speak of this utopian equality and say if we were all equal, we would be content. We were all just equal. When we think that way, we forget about the majority of humanity that are poor. Bangladesh, India, Ethiopia, the Philippines. Dunham writes, first we convince ourselves that we have a sort of cosmic right to an equal share of all the good things of life. That's a fallacious idea, and it plays folly into our lives. There's no equality in talents, abilities, opportunities. There's not even equality to being in the right place at the right time. There, there's no cosmic right that is ours to have an equal share of what everybody else has. And if you're prone to leaning in that direction, he writes, consider how you would feel if you were averaged out, we're going to average us out, with the world's two billion starving people. We always want to be averaged up, not down. If we averaged all the people of the world out, we would move down, not up. <laughs> you got it? Just know that. Most people that want equality for contentment want equality up. They want to be equal with somebody who has more, not less. There's always going to be someone with more and always somebody with less. In Hebrews 13:5, the writer says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What is that saying? God says, I am enough. I am enough. God. God is enough. We have the illusion that happiness comes from the outside in rather than the inside out. Maxie says, happiness is an inside job. We usually end up coveting that which can never make us happy, failing to realize that what matters most is not what becomes of us, but what we become. He goes on to write, there are two ways to be rich. One is to have a lot of possessions. The other is to have few needs. A lot of possessions or few needs. Be content with what you have. The second solution is, letter B, seek God first. Seek God first. Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31 to 33, Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Often we seek God not for himself, but as our cosmic watchman who guards our possessions, or our cosmic fairy godmother who gives us everything we want. All good things given to us are to be enjoyed, but we must not make enjoyment our goal. God is our goal. We must not make enjoyment our goal. God is our goal. That is one of the hardest things to do in our entertainment culture, in our possessions culture, all the things. Enjoyment is not our goal. God is our goal. Joy Davidman writes, there is in the last analysis only one way to stop covetousness and the destruction of body and soul that spring from covetousness, and that is to want God so much that we can't be bothered with inordinate wants for anything else. It always comes back to God. The third counterbalance to covetousness, letter C, is rely on Jesus Christ. Rely on Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 11 to 13. For I 
have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Wow. Wow. And if the Apostle Paul had to rely on God's power to be content, why should I be embarrassed or apologize that I need God's help as well? Our power source, our strength to be content is found in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot be content in our strength alone. The writer of Proverbs, I'm going to leave you with this before we're dismissed today. He addressed contentment in an interesting and a really timeless way. And I'm going to put it up here. It's Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. And he writes this, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Covetous or content? Where are you today? If you need help, remember that we can do all things through Christ who gives us the strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought us through this, this series of, of great guidelines of, of how to relate to you and how to relate to one another. And I pray that you would continue your process of life change through that. I pray that you, Father, would be with us as we move on into 2018 believing that you are going to take care of all our needs. You're going to be faithful as you always have been. And God, that we would know you in a brand new way as we move forward. Since we're starting 2018, we're going to take some time this morning. We're going to sing one last song. I'll, in a moment, I'll invite you to stand and, and, uh, Vern and Nancy are going to be over here as a prayer team. Uh, if you have prayer requests, uh, they'll be ready to pray. If you just want to come up and stand or kneel and pray, just a way to enter the new year in prayer, praying for when it being prayed for or praying. So as we stand and sing, feel free to do that. Um, it's nothing, uh, nothing liturgical or anything mandatory, but uh, we just want to open the altar to do that. So let's stand together, shall we? And, and you can... Feel free to come as we sing.